I always looked around and said, I can do more than what these four walls limit me to. I never say no, I say no problem. I always said, I'm not an opportunist, but I will always keep my eyes open for opportunity. And that's why I say in life, you need more luck than brains sometimes because lo and behold, I got beyond the four walls of my businesses in a way that I never dreamed of. My name is Renee Strauss. My company is Wedaways. It is a platform for properties that cater to the wedding and honeymoon and romantic travel market that are looking for greater exposure specifically to the demographics of engaged couples around the world, travel agents that typically focus on corporate, but will get a personal request and they will send that request over to us and wedding planners around the world that are seeking to expand their portfolios, but need the ground support in the regions that their clients are asking for, and they turn to Wedaways for that support and referral base. And our head office is in Beverly Hills, California, where we've been based for all of our businesses for almost 35 years. And we have an office in Cork, Ireland, to support the European market, and in Rhode Island, Bristol, Rhode Island, to support the East Coast business. And it sounds like you're quite the traveler, because I know we're doing this interview pretty quick. Usually I did the pre-interview, and you said you're going to be traveling next week, so I figured let's go ahead and just get it in here now. So appreciate you doing that. Is that what made you kind of get into this space? Because the traveling aspect is kind of cool to be able to look at your website and see all these different places that you could have your wedding at. Yes. Well, I was in luxury retail in Beverly Hills, in bridal specifically, for many, many years. And I loved the customer service aspect of it. I loved when people from all over the world came into my store and I was able to make them not only feel at home in the environment, but actually follow through and close a sale at the same time. And I always felt like if I wasn't in luxury retail, I'd probably want to be a tour guide. I guess I threw that message out into the universe and it morphed over the years. And although I'm not a tour guide, we are in the travel business now. And it was sort of a natural process. So do you think the hardest aspect of doing that in Beverly Hills, the retail part, is the actual closing of the sale? No, actually, I think the hardest part of retail is having the merchandise that your consumer base will want to purchase. The profit is in the buy, not in the sell. Your background, are you in the Beverly Hills? Are you from there? You're talking about your companies have been there for about 30 plus years. Okay, so no, I'm from Chicago and I came to California as a 16 year old. I sort of left home and wandered out on my own and ended up in San Diego, California. Ended up living there for about six years where I had a job in a bridal salon in the stock room and I was always in this great wonder of how somebody could spend a thousand dollars on a garment that they would wear just once. And even though I had several jobs along the way until I got into the bridal business, that always struck me as incredible. And so I pursued that as I got older. You were just naturally, John, your whole experience has been in this bridal area then, right? Well, it's been in weddings, but I think the real love of business for me is the customer service aspect. 
in any form of business where we can have a product that will be well received by our demographic and that we're able to cater to them in the way in which I personally want to be catered to when I'm a consumer is the real thrill that we're able to really satisfy that need and follow through on it. Why don't we go to the first business that you started? Do you want to do it from there? And we'll just kind of go chronologically on how you got to what a ways today. Sure. I came to California as a 16-year-old. I dropped out of school in eighth grade and I didn't continue any education. But when I got to California, I got a job in a bridal salon and I really loved that because I was being of service. And fast forward, I ended up in Los Angeles and there was an opportunity to go into a menswear business on Skid Row on Los Angeles Street. And I took that plunge and went into that business. I actually made a deal and bought the business. And we were selling to a very low-end demographic, belts for $1.95, underwear for $3.95, suits for $15.95. But I really was doing very well, and it was a great business. But when I would get to work and I'd have to step over bodies to get to the front door, I knew that it wasn't going to be a future. So I decided I would try and go into another upscale retail situation. So I thought bridal would be something that I had experienced from years before, and I really loved it. And so I started to look for a location to open a bridal salon. And as good fortune would have it, luck and timing is much more important than brains most of the time. I was speaking with a real estate agent who was dating a woman that had a bridal salon in Beverly Hills for about 30 years. And she had never married. This was her baby, but she was ill and really wanted to take the last few years of her life and just spend it the way she found enjoyable. So she was willing to sell the business. You know, I can tell that story in 30 seconds, but the fact was that it took about two years to close the deal because we went to New York on a buying trip when I was supposed to actually buy the store. And then she reneged and it was greatly disappointing and went back to Los Angeles and ended up closing the deal. But she never allowed me in the actual store until escrow closed. I used to go in front of the store at night when the store was closed and count the light bulbs that were burned out and look at the ripped carpeting and the old inventory. But knowing that the business had been there for 30 years and it was pretty much the only game in town, I could really feel that I could make a success of it and turn it around. And just to let you know, by this time, I was married and had two kids, small children, and it was the early 80s. Escrow closed, I went in the store, and I had to revamp the entire place. I knew that being in Beverly Hills, the biggest, best thing about it was that I could capitalize on that location. And it was a big, expensive deal for me, and it was pretty scary, but I hired somebody to moonlight for me and help me revamp my store windows. That was my very first investment, even before I bought new inventory, because I knew that your windows are your business card if you're in retail. So I revamped the store windows and one thing at a time, lo and behold, because I was on the main boulevard in Beverly Hills, the most trafficked street in the city, producers and directors in Hollywood would pass to and from work every day. And when they were working on any kind of wedding scene in a commercial print or a movie or TV production, they would come into my store and look for merchandise to use for the shooting of whatever project they were working on. And in that way, I was able to start studio services out of my store 
which is when you either sell merchandise off the rack to a studio production or you rent the garment to them. And the rental was really great money for me because I could rent it for the full ticket price that a consumer would buy it for, get it back into my inventory and still make money off of that one sample. Or we could really push inventory that wasn't moving to these productions and turn over inventory and get paid right away. It was a great business for me. And a lot led to the fact that when I was doing these movie and television and commercial print productions, the producers, directors, and actors started wanting to have our company do the wardrobe for their personal weddings. And over time, I had been going to New York and buying merchandise and filling up my store with gorgeous things. And over time, as more money came in, I would find ways to enhance the business. I was very excited about doing that business. And being a retailer in a specific market, like we were, bridal, we would be what we call the first feeders to the market. So every photographer, videographer, caterer, baker, anybody that was in any aspect of weddings would come to us, to my store, to try and feed off of our clientele. So they would give us brochures, business cards. Mind you, this was in the days before retail. And having worked so hard to procure my client base, I wasn't going to just pass these people's business cards out after I worked so hard to get the client, like I said. But I would keep the information and slowly but surely, I built a roster of various vendors in the industry as I became more and more integrated into the TV, motion picture, and commercial production industry, people in those industries, including the actors, wanted me to actually do their entire weddings rather than just the wardrobe. Because I had a full roster of international businesses that catered to the industry, I found it very easy to say yes. But because I was in Beverly Hills, i.e. Los Angeles, I couldn't take the local wedding business because it would kill my referral base from wedding planners all in the Southland region. Only weddings I could take were destination weddings. So I started to do destination weddings. My business grew from being a bridal retailer to wardrobing movies, TV, and commercial productions in Hollywood, including Young and the Restless and General Hospital for 15 years, and doing major motion pictures like Father of the Bride, which is one of the biggest Disney productions, which not only I did the wardrobe for and consulted on the set, but I'm actually in the movie itself. My business really morphed over time, and that wedding umbrella encompassed so many different areas of revenue streams that I really never said no to any of those opportunities. I just said, no problem, let's go for it. And over time, I was able to grow the business. No, I appreciate that summary. So I think even just all within there, even if we stop the interview now, we could understand how you got to where you are today as far as your business wetaways today. But do you mind if we jump back to you buying your first business and kind of figure out what you actually learned? So maybe if we're opening a retail shop or retail business that we can learn from your experiences here. I don't think, Austin, that you have to or that a listener would have to just pigeonhole it to retail. I think business in general when you want to go after something and either open a business or buy a business from somebody else and improve upon it, the relationship is the core value. If you're able to establish a relationship with the person with whom you are engaging, it will make the entire difference. Because when I bought my first business, which was menswear, downtown Los Angeles, I had zero money, but I was able to establish enough of a relationship with the owner of the company that they knew 
that I would be responsible enough that they would carry the paper, meaning that I didn't have to go to the bank for a loan. They would actually hold that loan and let me pay them back over time. And I was able to engage enough with them that they had the trust that I was going to follow through on my commitment, which I did. And I used the same relationship building skills and acumen and sincerity when I bought the bridal salon. And I bought that bridal salon from a person who was, like I mentioned earlier, was not in the best of health, but she didn't mind a payoff over time and she carried the paper. And as my business grew and I outgrew that physical location and inevitably paid off the loan to buy that business, I had to expand into a larger location. And I shopped for a store and found a building in Beverly Hills on Wilshire Boulevard on the main drag close to my original store, but this store didn't have any windows. And when you're in a retail business like mine, a luxury retail business, your windows are your business card. That's how I grew my first business. But I took the chance anyway, and I spoke with the owner, and I had given him my whole history of buying businesses up until that point and the future of the business that I had currently at that time, which was doing very well. And he carried the paper as well. So I was able to buy my third opportunity, which was that building. And again, he carried the paper. And those relationships, the core of the relationships that I was able to develop were what gave me the opportunities that I had in my career. Hopefully that helps. I feel like I came at least a little bit more helpful at the end there. No, I, I do. I think it helps. And like I said, it's like, going to see a psychiatrist talking about your problems in life. You're like, we're talking with you about our <laughs> problems in business and startups. So, I mean, when we vocalize it, we talk, something else will enter our brains and, and we're like, okay, yeah, there it is. Nice. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Rock. So were you the one making the suggestion on them carrying the paper? Because this is pretty interesting. Again, we can learn lots of different things from your story, right? It doesn't have to be necessarily in the high luxury retail industry, but I just find it kind of fascinating, like how you even bring that up and are able to get them to believe in you if they're carrying the paper instead of you going to the bank, especially when you had $0 for that first business. Yes. It was me that brought it up because one thing that I did learn, and this is not necessarily true if you grow a large, large business, but in my case, I was always my own best representative. And I like to carry on my own conversations and make my own appearances and make my own meetings and get to the bottom line by understanding what their goals were and understanding what the nature of their specific business or piece of real estate was. Well, you cannot put a square peg into a round hole or vice versa. Things have to be able to line up. There has to be that synergy and the match has to be right. When you understand what the other person is looking for and the specific type of either business or piece of real estate that they're selling is, and it really matches up with what you're looking for and what you see as your future, it's under those circumstances that you can really engage in a heart-to-heart head-to-head conversation to make it win-win all around. For these three businesses, because there's three different businesses that you're talking about that you went to the owner of the business and had them carry the paper, quote unquote, like your first one was the men's cheap retail, right? And then it was your wedding store. And then the third one was when you're moving locations into a bigger warehouse. Yeah, into a building, into an actual luxury building. So with these three instances, how many people did you have to go through or either different businesses or properties did you have to go through? Because it sounds like you just went to each one of these three and boom, it worked out. But I would think that maybe you'd have to go through dozens to try to get this deal to actually work up. 
Okay, that's a very fair question. The first runaround when I bought the menswear store, it was sort of an organic situation because while I was living in San Diego, I was what we call jobbing. So I was buying menswear, like jeans. I was an in-betweener. I would buy from a manufacturer and then I would sell to a store that didn't necessarily have the credit to buy from the manufacturer directly. And I used to go up to Los Angeles in order to sell the goods. This is way back in the beginning of time when jobbers were very, very well known in the industry. They still sort of exist, but not in the same way that they did in those days. And when I would do that, I would be up and down on the main street in Los Angeles. I would see a lot of businesses and it was through those relationships that I found that opportunity of a store owner that really wanted to retire. A lot of pounding the pavement, not necessarily having that in my mind, like I wanted to open my own business, but it just happened that that person was in front of me. I always said, I'm not an opportunist, but I will always keep my eyes open for opportunity. And this opportunity arose when I was doing these transactions with these business owners And this one particular business owner, like I said, really wanted to retire. And we just talked because we had a relationship going. And I was always friendly. And I've always had a lot of curiosity. I've always been a person who's asked questions, not invasively, but just out of genuine interest. And when I have these conversations, a lot of things come out in the open and opportunities arise. That's how the first one happened. And then when I decided I wanted to go into luxury bridal and leave that low-end menswear, which was a cash cow in those days, behind and have a better lifestyle for myself and for my family, it was easy to find the opportunity because it was a niche business. There wasn't a lot of competition. There was almost no competition in those days. But I got lucky in that I found a retailer who was dating somebody who owned the only one in town. That was a stroke of luck. And that's why I say in life, you need more luck than brains sometimes, because when these things happen, it's like the universe just lines up and it's kismet. But to actually close that deal, it was very difficult. It took, like I said, two years. I traveled with her. She wouldn't allow me to even go in the store or look at the books until escrow closed. And I sort of did it with my gut, which I wouldn't necessarily say is the best way to do it in this day and age. But in that time, it worked out for me, but it was an uphill climb. And then when I made the plunge into the building, because I needed a larger place and I decided at that point in my career, I wanted to invest in my own building, I thought it was completely out of reach. And I just thought, oh, this is just a long shot. It's a dream. It'll never happen. So I started looking at buildings in Beverly Hills and there was this one building that was stunning, just gorgeous, all travertine marble on the exterior, but no windows. So I wasn't even thinking of going in to even consider it, even though I knew it was for sale. But the reason I did was because it had a parking lot. And the parking in Beverly Hills is so valuable because there just is such a limited amount of parking that that's what encouraged me to actually reach out and talk to the owner. And I bypassed the real estate agent. I told the real estate agent, whatever deal you have with the owner of the building, keep your commission, but I want to talk to them in person. I was able to reach that person and it took a few months to work it out, but it was because I really went after it. I call it my ears were up at the starting gate and I just had one goal in mind to find out if I could make that deal. I went after it and I did it and it wasn't easy. And it was very expensive, but I did it. And what year was that deal when you moved into that building? 
I bought the building in 1989 as I was working on the film Father of the Bride. By the end of 1990, we moved into the building and it was exactly at the time when the entire bridal market totally crashed because there was a bridal designer that came onto the scene that is one of the only bridal designers in the entire world that even men have heard of. And her name is Vera Wang. And her father bankrolled her business with about $8 million. And she gobbled up the bridal industry and only sold to specific places. And everybody in the industry scrambled for about two years to figure out where their footing is and what consumers were buying. And it was at that pivotal time in my career that I said, I'm going to start to go to Europe and import wedding gowns. And it was at that critical point that there was no internet in those days. I had no way of finding out designers in Europe. I actually went to the library. I looked in magazines and telephone books and I found bridal gown designers in London. And I took a chance and I flew to London and I got a conference room in a hotel and I stayed there for three weeks. And I asked the concierge to help me find every bridal designer that could come to see me at my hotel from the UK area. And they did. And that's when I started importing wedding gowns and it saved my business. The great bridal crash of 91, right? Don't we call it? It was 191991 It was, it shook up the entire industry. So when you went to Europe to get these bridal gowns, what was the thinking? Were they cheaper? Are they different? Like what was, you said it saved your business. So tell us a little bit more about this. In any business that you're in, whether it's a retail location or online platform like we are currently in, you are at the mercy of your demographic and your consumer, of course. You have to capitalize on whatever that consumer is looking for. In our case, we were in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills is an international hub. We have some of the top, most luxurious hotels in the world in a three-square-mile radius. I knew all the concierges and catering managers and hotel GMs, and they all sent business to me. So I had to capitalize on the fact that not only did we have a luxury demographic by virtue of the residents in the city, but by virtue of the fact that we had such an influx from international markets. So my goal was to create an inventory that catered to an international market and a market that, and a consumer base that was looking for really the best of the best. So I went to Europe and I pounded the pavement and I sought out designers that created gorgeous and unique merchandise and I brought it into the US and I ended up importing from the UK, Spain, Italy, and France. And it took me some time, a couple of years, to really build out my contact bases. But I became a guest of the trade commissions of those four markets in that they would actually pay for my travel to go to the international exhibitions where the designers would show their new merchandise. And they would pay for my hotel rooms to encourage me to bring merchandise into the U.S. They underwrote my trips for over 20 years, and it was a huge access for me to get to know the wedding communities in those four countries and beyond, and it really laid the platform for a lot of awareness of my company overseas. It really grew my international brand. When you were going over there and getting those new wedding dresses, what was the difference between Miss Wang's? Was her like cheaper when you were just trying to find something that was different and more luxurious? Is there like a little bit more details on how you were smart enough to figure out to go over there and what the actual market would want? 
I wouldn't say that it was really so smart until in retrospect, it was genius. But at that time, it was absolute survival because I had just bought a building and I didn't have the proper inventory that was catering to the demographic. Because what happened was Vera Wang had been personally an ice skater and she designed the ice skating costume for the Olympic medalist, Nancy Kerrigan, who they have just recently in the last couple of years made a movie about what happened to her. Forgive me, you might know the name of the movie better than I, but it's a great movie and it's starring Margaret Roby, who is now in Mary Queen of Scots as the star. I think her name was Tammy. I've forgotten her name. I don't want to digress. But anyway, so Vera Wang designed a wedding gown very similar to the costume that she designed for Nancy Kerrigan. And it was the rage. It was a trend. And it was a hard trend that penetrated the market for almost two years. And everything is trend-based when it really becomes the hot ticket from mini skirts, the 60s to... I still wear mini skirts. You know, so. Oh, I'm sure you look adorable in them. But um, things are trend driven and she just started the hottest trend. And so we needed to find something that would be unique and different and cater to a market that wasn't necessarily a trend consumer. A trendy consumer is somebody that they're not the wealthiest of the marketplace, but they just want to sort of keep up. I want to use the word like sort of wannabes, a little bit nouveau riche, but a consumer that's a little bit more educated, is very well traveled, is used to buying a handbag for $3,000 or a pair of shoes for $800. They will be more apt to look for quality and style over trend. And that was really the consumer that I was catering to. And I think the movie's called I, Tanya. Is that right? is Tanya Harding. Right, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Google actually it has pretty good ratings here too. So I might check it's that out. It's an excellent movie. Okay. That's how Vera Wang got her start. She was catering and those wedding dresses flooded the market. You're saying everyone wanted those. And then you realized you had to do something in order to keep your business alive, right? Exactly. To feed my family. By now I had four children and they were all under five years old. It was sink or swim at that point. Did you have all this energy back then as well? Oh my gosh, Austin, I am catatonic today. I had so much energy, I could run in circles around everybody. Now I have Just because you're talking to me? <laughs> no, you're adorable and wonderful and a great interviewer. But compared to what I used to be, I'm like running on a quarter tank. Okay. I don't have the energy I used to have, but I still can probably outrun a lot of people. Yeah, now it sounds like it. I think you can outrun me. So you had four kids under five at this point in time when you had to go. It was the early 90s when you went to Europe to make this change in your business. Yeah. And I was one of those cases where they say working women have it all. Working women don't necessarily, well, they didn't in my day, didn't necessarily have it all. I would have to go to Europe for three weeks at a time. And then I'd go back to back with the New York bridal market. So I would be away for six weeks at a time sometimes. And it was extremely difficult for me as a mom. It was difficult for my kids as a family. And it was difficult in my marriage. I did not have a great marriage and I ended up leaving that marriage. And it was very, very, very challenging. Thank God today, my kids are between 29 and 35 years old. And I, for the most part, have fabulous relationships with them. And my youngest, who is my only daughter, is my business partner, which I'm so grateful for. And so things, they work out in the end. So did you do their weddings? Of course. I've done two weddings of my kids so far. I've got two more to go and it's the best thing I can imagine. 
We'll go back to, if you don't mind, that turning point in your business, you realizing you having to get different inventory to stand out and make your clientele happy. One other part was you brought this up, and I think it was really important that you didn't want to leave money on the table by having all these brides come into your actual bridal store. All these people wanted a piece of it, those contacts, and you realize you can't go into the LA market and deal with that, that you'd have to do that outsource. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that was important because you even asked me on the pre-interview, it's like, how do I monetize a podcast? And Right now, I only do it through advertisers, but you were talking about being able to have relationships with other people and find out ways to monetize that yourself after you've done all the heavy lifting and having all these clients come in here. Yes, absolutely. Relationships are the key to the launching pad of any, I'm going to say success and or failure, but relationships are everything. And relationships come from a base of sincerity and interest and real concern and just curiosity and you can build on that in all aspects of personal and professional life. For me, I started something pre-internet that was called a referral booklet. And as all these people would come to me and give me their business cards or put brochures down and ask to penetrate our client base and to get referrals, I gathered them up and I'm sort of like a, I'm not a type A personality necessarily, maybe sort of, but I'm very organized in the way I think. I'm not always in the way I do, but very much in the way I think. So I gathered all of these various business contacts. I categorized them and I reached back out to them and I said, we can create what we call a referral booklet and we can pass it out to all of our clients. And they book you, they book you, but they've got a resource list and people went for it. And in those days, I started the booklet in the eighties. And at that time I was charging $500 a year to be a part of it. And we had a referral booklet of over 100 pages. It was very successful. And people to this day told me that I sort of started the internet listings on paper. And over time, as I was asked to do the actual weddings and I couldn't take the local weddings because I didn't want to kill my client referral base, I took destination weddings. And one of the destination weddings that I said yes to was a family that had already purchased a wedding gown for one of their daughters. They came in and they purchased a wedding gown for their second daughter and they asked me to do their wedding. And I said, well, where's the wedding going to be? And they said, well, we want to do it in Italy. And I said, oh, Italy, I love Italy. I've been going to Italy for years and importing wedding gowns. Where in Italy? And they said, oh, we want to do it in Rome because that's where we're from. And I said, Rome, oh my gosh, I love Rome. It's so gorgeous. Where in Rome do you have in mind? And they said, at the Vatican. And I said, Yes, I am a Jewish girl from Chicago in Beverly Hills selling wedding gowns. I would love to do your wedding at the Vatican. Two years later, we had a magnificent wedding at the Vatican with the most magnificent reception at one of the most glorious villas on one of the hilltops of Rome. And I attended the wedding and sat next to the owner of Trader Joe's and one of the intercontinental hotel owners. And it was the most incredible experience. And Andrea Bocelli did a whole performance for them. And it was just an amazing experience. I never say no. I say no problem. I have opened doors that have been just incredible. I guess that's not the very first one you did, right? I think that's very smart to not say no to anything like this. But I don't know if you want to walk us through the very first one you did like that. Or maybe you can walk us more in detail on that experience. Were you just going to take... X amount of dollars that they're going to pay you and then you were going to divvy it out like a contractor would a house, if you will? Or were you helping getting even more involved or were you kind of taking more of the wedding planner role? Just tell us like how you knew how to do this. At first, it just seemed like you were worried about the retail shopping, selling gowns, right? Instead of this part of the business. So tell us how you're able to expand it to that and learn that. 
Well, because they wanted to get married at the Vatican, it wasn't going to be the type of situation where we're engaged and we want to get married in six months. It was going to be a very long process. I knew that. And that's why I was able to say yes, because I could figure it out along the way. There's that old saying, build a 747 as you fly, which a lot of entrepreneurs say you should do when you're building a business. I don't necessarily go by that adage, although I can understand it in certain circumstances. But in this case, it was the very first wedding anybody asked me to do. Wow, that's quite a wedding to first start off the business on. Yeah, but you know, by the time the wedding happened, it wasn't my first because it was two years down the road. But the thing is, it's like I said several times already, you never say no, you say no problem, you learn as you go and you are of service. And when you have that mindset that you want to be of service, you already have the context. Like in my case, I had been to Italy so many times because I'd been importing wedding gowns. And so I had so many contacts at hotels and with wedding industry professionals. So for me, it wasn't that difficult to make some phone calls and to find out who to call in because it was already in Italy, in Rome, that I had these contacts. That was very fortuitous on my part. Plus the fact that this family were Italian immigrants. They even had a house in Rome. They already had a lot of access and they were very wealthy. It sort of comes back to capitalizing on your location and your demographic. They had the million dollars to donate to the Vatican in order to open access. And I took over the organizational role of making sure that the villa would be able to handle the group and make sure the catering was taken care of and the transportation was taken care of. And I did all of the logistical, operational things, as well as doing the wardrobe for all the females in the family. And then when I went and we were in the largest capella, in St. Peter's Basilica for the actual ceremony that was officiated by the Secretary of State of the Vatican. When they kneeled down for the sacraments, I ran down and fixed her wedding gown. I did all the hands-on stuff. And it was pretty amazing and remarkable. And it was a great lesson. Every time I have a public speaking opportunity and we have anything to do with one of the topics that I speak on is your network is your net worth. This is one of the occasions that I bring up in my speeches and my speaking because it really made the difference. I had already done a wedding for the family. They already trusted me and they believed in me and I was able to gain their confidence and was able to do it. But it wasn't what I always wanted to do. I didn't want to be a wedding planner necessarily. It was a natural and organic transition in another revenue stream direction that I didn't want to turn down. And so I did it, but it wasn't my first love, but it opened a lot of opportunities because from that, from doing destination weddings and learning about different markets and experiencing different countries and the luxurious properties that they had to offer, it really expanded my network. And eventually I got my own television show because I had done a wedding for, I think it was the right-hand person of Ryan Seacrest for 10 years. And she came into my store to buy a wedding gown and she was a producer for him. And she said to me, this was when everybody had their own television show, like in around 2010, 2011, 2012. And she said, Renee, you really need your own show. And she ended up sending a producer into me and it didn't work out with that producer. But inevitably, another producer came in that actually was from Canada and pitched the idea and they were scouting for a location and scouting for a store owner, I ended up landing my own television show. And that really changed my life. And how so? All the time (laughs) that I was in retail, all the time, all the years from day one that I got into my first luxury retail bridal salon, I always looked around and said, 
I can do more than what these four walls limit me to. I can do more. I can do more. When I started that referral booklet, I got out beyond the walls and I let people know about various vendors. And then when I shot a gala wine commercial up in Napa Valley and the producer called action and I saw everybody raise their glass, an idea dawned on me. Oh my gosh, I should bottle my own champagne and use it as a trademark, which I did for 30 years. And all of these ideas that I had of branding before branding was considered what it is today, I had these ideas that I want to do more and do more and be bigger and have a greater reach. So when I was importing wedding gowns, I felt like I got out from behind the walls, but I always felt like I could do more. And then, as I said, it was this mantra that I put out in the universe. I got my own television show and lo and behold, I got beyond the four walls of my businesses in a way that I never dreamed of. I couldn't let it stop there. I had to continue that momentum because I wasn't ready to give it all up and do the next entrepreneurial dive that I could. And that's how Wedaways actually began. Well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which... I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. We're talking about having all synergy and being able to do all these things. We can tell just even through your voice. And I think that's what drives a lot of entrepreneurs is like, you feel like you can keep doing things. If you get a little success, it's not good enough. I can take it to another level, et cetera. But was there ever a time where you ended up getting burnt out from doing all this stuff? Because it sounds like you were just pushing as many hours as you can within a week during these years. You know, it's true. And until this day, I probably only sleep about four or five hours every third night if I'm lucky. But aside from being able to run on empty, I had so many pitfalls. Aside from the personal pitfall of leaving my marriage and leaving my four kids behind in order for me to be able to save the business that was feeding my kids, to dealing with employees where I had labor issues because management wasn't operating to their fullest potential. And I was so busy doing the other parts of the business that I felt needed pursuing that I had talent in. I neglected other aspects of my business, which led to labor lawsuits, which were devastating to me. And the love of my life that I ended up marrying, who was our family dentist, who I married eventually and almost lost him to cancer twice on a personal level, it was devastating to my husband. My husband, his name is Michael, losing his only son in a car accident almost 10 years ago all of these pitfalls that we had personally and professionally that brought us at one time the highest of highs and at many times the lowest of lows. I just never thought it was the end. I don't know what it is about me. And I've had so many things that I've tried and I've hoped that I would win the jackpot, not the jackpot in terms of like striking it rich, because I never went after it just to strike it rich. I was lucky in that I made a lot of money, but I've always done it for the satisfaction of being able to achieve. I have had so many times things that I've tried that just didn't come to fruition. It's been painful, but I never let it stop me. Even as bad as things could get, I just never stopped and said, I'm finished. It's over. I can't do anymore. 
I always felt like there's something that's going to happen. The page is going to turn. It is not the end of the book. That's how I've always felt. Right before that, talking about wetaways and kind of how it forms. So do you want us to bring us into that? I guess you started that a little bit over three years ago or so. And mm -hmm. did you stop doing everything else or tell us just about this new entrepreneurial journey? Well, I got the television show called Brides of Beverly Hills on TLC and it had international distribution. The producers really encouraged me to make a lot of appearances. So I did. And I traveled for the show for publicity and it was exciting and great. And we actually moved into another location to film second season because the story of the building that I had in Beverly Hills, I ended up selling that building and not realizing that I was going to get second season. And then five days after we closed escrow on that building, I found out I got second season. So TLC funded a second store for the show. <laughs> thankfully. And that was like miraculous. <laughs> right. Yeah. That would have ruined everything, the whole show. Yeah. Well, so they really believed in me. And it just so happened that a lot of the big wigs in the Discovery Network, their wives bought wedding gowns for me, even the ones that lived in Maryland. People had confidence that I could do what I said I could do. We got a, another location. It was very beautiful. And I was able to stock it with a million dollars of inventory and all on consignment from different manufacturers around the world. And it was really great. But business, it was in 2012. It was very difficult at that time. Retail was really being hammered by the internet. And I just didn't see that I wanted to stay in this forever. And we probably would have done season three had the building that we were leasing from not gotten a 10-year long-term tenant, which really changed the dynamics. And we had to exit the building. And TLC didn't want to go into a third place. And frankly, I was sort of burned out by then. At the end of 2012, I took a small place for about three months just to see, test the waters a little bit. And I realized my heart wasn't in it. But the last guests that I had on my show were a Broadway couple that actually got engaged on a season finale of America's Got Talent, Diana DeGarmo and AC Young. And while we were filming the episode of our show, we spent a lot of time together and they asked me if I would do their wedding as well. So I accepted it. It was several months after I was out of retail completely, but E! Entertainment did about six episodes special on the process of their wedding because these are like hot young stars on Broadway and really sweet. And it got me an opportunity to get a job for two years as an ambassador for one of the hotel groups in Los Angeles to be a wedding destination ambassador for them and a wedding ambassador. And in that role, I had to do a couple of B to C events for them in a two-year period. So the contract was decent and I was making money and I was reaching out to a lot of vendors and I did it and it sort of occupied my time for two years. And in the meantime, I did Diana and Ace's wedding, which was wonderful. Ace was the only groom of all the weddings I had ever done who actually gave me a kiss right as he walked up the aisle. They are the most lovely couple I've ever worked with. And I did it, but my heart wasn't in it. So I did that for a couple of years. And now fast forward, it's 2014. And I really didn't know what I was going to do. My husband is a successful dentist in Beverly Hills. I've known him for over 30 years. He and I have a really romantic love story. He wanted me to just stop. He said, you've hit the mark on every plateau. You've been at the top of your game in retail. You've had your own television show. How many people can say that? Why don't you just stop now and enjoy your life? And I just have that entrepreneurial itch that I wanted to do another project. 
And lo and behold, I got very lucky. The Trade Commission of Italy, with whom I had worked with for 25 years importing wedding gowns, they contacted me and they asked me if they could give my credentials to the Italian Tourism Board because my television show was really popular in Italy. It was one of the top shows and it was still playing in reruns. And the Italian Tourism Board and some of the shows that are produced in that country for tourism, they were looking to get some more visibility to their market. So I said, yeah, sure, give them my credentials. And we engaged in conversation and I ended up signing a contract with them to bring wedding planners to Italy to tour luxury properties and to increase the visibility of their wedding market to the North American market. And I did it because I was, first of all, I always loved to travel. And I still wanted to continue that. And they really took care of me. They booked all of my travel business class and I was at the most luxurious properties and they took care of me like I was a queen. And everywhere I went, even though I brought very well-known North American wedding planners, because my TV show is so popular, nobody there at the hotels or anywhere else we went wanted to talk to anybody but me. They wanted pictures with me and autographs and people would flood me at train stations. And I was very, very popular. And I said, wow, this is really interesting. I'm bringing all of these people that everybody knows in North America and they've got really great businesses. But when I get here, nobody cares about them. They only care about me and they want to know what we can do together. So maybe I should consider doing something different than I've ever done before. And my youngest child, who's my only daughter, I've got four kids, my three sons and a princess, as I always say, she was living in the Middle East. She had gotten her master's degree and was working in international sales and was considering moving back to London, where she went for undergrad. We talked all the time, and I said to her, why don't you meet me in Italy for one of these fam trips? These fam trips are familiarization trips that properties and destinations sponsor for professionals in an industry to go and see what the landscape is for whatever specific business it is. So if it's a tourism board, it's to see the lay of the land of the destination they represent. If it's a property group, it's to give travel professionals the lay of the land of what their properties have to offer in specific destinations. So these were for familiarization trips for wedding planners to get to know the lay of the land of the wedding industry in Italy. So I said to Pamela, which is my daughter's name, I said, Pamela, meet me in Italy and let's spend some time here and let's see what's going on. And she did. She came and we rented a car. We spent five weeks in Italy. We drove north, south, east, west. We even put our car on a ferry and went to Sicily. And we went to about 150 properties. We interviewed about 100 wedding planners. And we came up with this idea of Wedaways. I woke up in the middle of the night and then I said, that's the name, Wedaways. We trademarked it in 27 countries. And we found about 30 properties at the end of that five-week trip that were interested in doing something that we could create some kind of a platform with me as the figurehead that would bring more awareness to their market. And when we finally came back to the U.S., that's when we found a developer, and that's when we built the website, and that's when we started Wetaways. Three years later, it's morphed. We're in version 2.0 of our website, and it's growing, and it's an amazing project. And I've always, in all of the businesses I've ever had, have always felt that if I had a fabulous business partner, I could do so much more because I'm limited to what I can do. And I just can't believe that my daughter is the best business partner I could ever dream of. She's talented and smart and she has great equilibrium and is a really hard worker. So I think the best is yet to come. And gets her great looks from her mother, right? 
Oh, you're so, so cute. Nobody knows what I look like. I don't know about it today because on your outreach, it said, this is audio only. You can sit there without underwear. Although I'm not sitting without underwear. I'm not wearing makeup. I've got my mini skirt on, so oh. I've got your LinkedIn profile. But I'm looking here. So what a ways you work with, Elisa says here on LinkedIn, 137 international properties in 19 countries. Yes, we do. And it's expanding. And at first we were focused on just marketing properties to consumers, but we have grown to service not only engaged couples, but families even that are going on trips together. We have incorporated full service virtuoso travel agency into our business. At first, we sort of fought tooth and nail. We didn't want to book travel. We just wanted to be a referral base for properties, but we couldn't say no. We couldn't leave money on the table. So we had to start our own travel agency and we cater to wedding planners that are looking to expand their networks and need ground support and travel agents who don't like the wedding business, but they've got the corporate clients that are asking for it on a personal level. So they look to us for all of our expertise internationally. So it's grown and morphed. Yeah. Was it just you and your daughter right now that kind of run that? Or what's your staff like now dealing with this? And how much of your time does it take up compared to businesses that you've worked with in the past? Well, this is an internet-based business, so this is really 24-7. Yeah. And you're international as well, the time zones, I imagine. Yeah, it's probably the hardest because it's so different than anything I've ever done before. When you have a retail store, you open, you close, and that's basically it. You got to go on buying trips and your boots on the ground. Here, it's like you said, it's 24-7, it's international, and we cater to different types of clientele. There are spinning plates all over the place. I have a PR marketing division of the company where one person does all the SEO stuff and the social media stuff, and another person who really gets us a lot of media attention on the PR side. And we have a developer that works in our office, and we have two people that work under Pamela in the travel division, and so there's about seven of us. We've talked about your growth along the way and these different businesses and things that we've learned. But I'm just curious, were you ever in financial trouble other than when you went to Europe to get the wedding? You're just dealing with a high-end clientele. And I found that most of the entrepreneurs I've interviewed, sometimes after they finally have some success, they might go buy some luxurious things and realize they got in over their head. Were you always like smart business-wise or personally like with your finances during this whole thing? Because I was in retail myself, luxury retail, I never really found it very entertaining or satisfying to go shopping. So I've never been a big shopper. I don't really know very much about cars. I don't know anything about cars, actually. But my husband does, so he has beautiful cars. But it never really made a difference to me. And thankfully, I lived in Beverly Hills, and my business has always been in Beverly Hills. So I've been walking to work for about 14 years. I've never even really cared about a car. So I've never done that. Travel has always been our biggest expense, but because I traveled in the past for either the trade commission or for the tourism boards, a lot of my travel has been underwritten and it continues to be today because I go to international luxury travel markets and I'm a hosted buyer, meaning that they pay for all of my trips. So the answer is on a personal level, I've always been very good with my finances. My businesses, however, suffered over the years in one way or another. My first business that I had, the menswear store downtown, I brought my brother into the business and he unfortunately had a very bad downfall. He got into some trouble with drugs and unfortunately almost bankrupt that business. And my bridal salon, I had grown to about 65 employees and I had different divisions of the company, and I had management teams, and I did not oversee one specific department. 
and I got into a very bad labor situation over that. That depleted almost all of my finances because of legal battles, and that was pretty devastating. But thank God I've recovered. Yeah, can you talk about that? Because you mentioned a couple of times about that. That sounds curious on making sure what happened here with that. Yes, what happened was, I do believe that you have to delegate in order to grow your business. I think that that is a very key part of the equation. But in that delegation, you cannot take your eyes off of the department. You know, I'm not speaking for a Fortune 500 company, but for a small business where we have, like I said, 65 employees, three different departments, it wasn't so unmanageable. But I was so focused on the sales, the buying and the selling that I didn't watch the alterations department. And it sort of had it took on a life of its own. And it actually was a convoluted circumstance in that we were a store full of women and it turned out that the forelady for my alterations department had a crush on my store manager, which was not reciprocated. And it turned out to be a very devastating circumstance where she was rebuked and she took vengeance out. And it's very dramatic, but it all came out in the trial because we ended up going to trial. And at the end of the day, I lost a labor suit because they sued me for not getting lunch breaks and different breaks during the day. And it just really got ugly. Like I said, I was very adamant. I didn't want to settle. They wanted me to settle for a ridiculous amount of money in the six figures, a very high six figures, close to seven figures. I fought it and the legal fees to fight it were hideous and hundreds of thousands of dollars. I ended up losing. And in the end, I paid a settlement. It was devastating. And the lesson learned is, like I said, you want to grow your business. You need to grow your business. You have to delegate responsibility. But you, at the end of the day, have to keep your eye on the ball. And if you don't, you lose sight of it and you can really suffer devastating losses. So had I not been married and had a husband who would take care of me during this, I don't know what would have happened. I can't project and I don't like to think about that. But it was during this time, Austin, that it all came to fruition that I almost lost my business. And I got the television show at the brink of losing the business and the building and everything. And it was at that time that television show kept me afloat. Obviously, that's great that that happened at the same point in time, because I think everything happens for a reason. Sounds like you're into the power of like, you don't even want to think about what could have happened and that negativity, but that maybe you're in the realm of like the power of positive thinking. Am I reading into that right? Yeah, you are. And I really believe that it's critical to your psyche and your success and your personal growth that I go by the motto, the best is yet to come. And it's my sign off on my signature on my emails. And it's my motto, 100%. And my other favorite saying is Michelangelo. He said, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. And I remember I was a guest host on a talk show here called Business Rockstars. And I guest hosted many times on that show. And when they asked me for my favorite quote and I told it to them, the host looked at me and said, what, what does that mean? And what it means is that you know it's there. You know that something is there. You just have to get to it. And it's that motivation that drives you. What drives you still today? It seems like you've had all this success, right? And appreciate you walking us down memory lane and things that we could have learned from. But I guess the present now and the future, what's going to drive you and what do you see for your future? Wetaways has great potential to serve the marketplace. 
And we are really trying to get our bearings on making sure that the website, which is our selling tool, provides what our consumers are looking for. And it's been a learning curve because I bootstrapped the business and we have not sought investment, but I think about it. Or I think about partnerships where people would love the industry and really want to grow the business, but it's a challenge. And therefore, I don't leave any stone unturned in terms of conversations and outreach and opportunities to get the fires really burning under the Wetaways engine and make it a very, very strong business. It's on its way, but there's a lot of work yet to do. And I see myself the next three or four years really pumping as hard as I can to give it really a good foundational business that my daughter can really run with and take over. So that drives me. And that's what I see. And it provides a lot of opportunity for travel, which I love. And I love being with people, meeting people. I love public speaking. I love sharing the pitfalls and the successes. And it just gives me a platform to do all the things I love as well as it feeds the need to work hard because I am a workaholic. And do you still sleep very little? I mean, how do you keep up that energy? You said you only slept four hours every other day or something like that. But realistically, is there a routine that you have to getting all these things accomplished that you want to get done? I do sort of follow a routine. I am a pretty early riser. I do not sleep very much. Every third night, I might get a decent night's sleep, but typically it's four to five hours waking up three or four times during that time. Sometimes I'll run to my desk into my computer and answer emails. Sometimes I'll just read news online or just look at pictures of my two gorgeous grandchildren that live in Canada. I'm driven. I'm really driven. So I like to be progressive. There are days where I don't move from my desk and I'm all day long answering correspondence and taking calls or doing interviews like I'm doing now with you or a podcast. And then there are days that I'm out and about with meetings all day and I'll just walk all around the city because I don't drive in the city if I can help it. I prefer not to drive at all. And I'll just be out and about or I'll be on the road traveling about probably at least 25 weeks a year I'm on the road. So I'm a busy person and I believe like that commercial says, a body that's in motion stays in motion. And that's really like who I am. I'm very progressive in everything I do. Does that include like the weekends you're still working this much? Or do you like relax at all during the weekends? Or is it just Monday through Friday? What is it? Because I mean, you say you travel a lot. So I imagine it occurs on the weekends as well. Yes, I travel over time periods. I don't fly on the Jewish Sabbath from sundown Friday till sundown Saturday night. So wherever I am, I'm typically gone over a weekend because I restrict that. I won't travel. Years ago, about 17, almost 18 years ago, my husband, Michael, and I purchased a home at the beach in Orange County, which is about 75 miles south of LA. And we try to go there every weekend that we possibly can when I'm in town. And when I'm not in town, he goes there. And when we go, we have our four mile walk that we hike. We've got our 550 stairs that we go up because we're both very much into physical fitness. We cook together and we just enjoy. And I'm a binge watcher of all kinds of historical dramas. So at every waking moment that I'm not working and not enjoying time with my husband or my kids, 
I'm binge watching a series on Netflix or Prime Video or something. I just fill every minute of the day with doing something. And when I settle down for a few minutes, I don't know what I'm doing. I can sit for two or three minutes and, and then I know that there's something that I could be doing that's progressive. Even if it's doing a cleaning chore in my house, whatever it is, I'm a very active person. That's me. And when you're waking up this early, are you setting like, what time would you wake up? Are you just waking up with energy to do your business right away? Or are you setting your alarm clock? Just tell us how that normally goes. Because I've been in a flow before where I used to just wake up super early, even with that alarm clock, because I was so excited about work. I don't know if you're the same way or, or if it's more routine based, at least when you're waking up. Well, because I do a lot of business overseas, okay, that makes I sense. am up late because I like to hit them first thing in the morning. But on the other hand, my husband is a very early riser. He's typically out of bed at six o'clock. He starts seeing patients at eight, sometimes even 7.30. So he wakes up. I sort of am there. I'm sort of waking up. Sometimes the alarm will go off. Sometimes I'll already be up because I'll have been on my phone looking at things. It really depends. I don't have a specific routine that the alarm rings and I jump out of bed and I run to the gym. I really don't do that. I'm sort of plugged in. I'm always sort of on the brink of being awake, even when I'm sleeping. Obviously, you might be the most traveled person I know, at least just based on everything that you've been discussing. Is there some favorite spots that someone's listening and they're a nomad entrepreneur or want to visit some spots? What are a few of your favorites? It really depends on the kind of traveler you are and what you're looking for. There are so many spectacular destinations in the world that have these pristine beaches and these crystal turquoise waters that in the Maldives that are amazing or in, even in Cabo or in Cancun, you know, at the Riviera Maya or in the Caribbean, or if you love ancient history or art, Europe has the most magnificent things to offer. Paris, of course, Rome, Tuscany, if you love the countryside, if you love amazing food and you're a gourmet, India has incredible food. It just really depends on the kind of travel you are. I personally am not the kind of traveler that can go and sit on the beach. I believe I've you. never <laughs> been like, I. yeah, it's just not me. Plus I'm a redhead, so I don't like to go. My skin is pretty fair. I don't like to lay in the sun. So I like to go where there's museums and lots of places to walk and stuff like that. But like this year, I went to France a few times. I went to Ireland with my husband. That was one of his favorite places. I was in Italy eight times this year. We have a full production company where we film weddings all over the world, as well as we have a vlog that we're launching in January called Romantic Wedding and Honeymoon Venues of the World. So with our full service production company called Wedaways Life Event Films, they have their own page on our website. We travel the world and we go to the most magnificent properties to film all of the wonderful features that they have to offer. So that gives us a lot of opportunity to travel. And in 2019, we plan to do that in Germany, romantic castles of Germany. I have Istanbul on the list. I'm going back to France, to Marseille, taking my husband to Barcelona. And I'm going to Cape Town, South Africa. I just booked that trip this morning. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Becoming a patron was something that I was always like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I was delaying it for whatever reason. And the other day I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. And, uh, and that's it. So... I'm very happy with it. Nice. Well, thank you for joining. So was there anything holding you back? It was just uh, taking the time to do it. Gotcha. Well, thank you for taking the time to do it. So um, where are you located? Here in Bolivia, in South America. Cool. 
Well, I think you're our first Patreon member from South America, so thanks for that again. And um, I don't know if you just saw, I just upped the group calls from once a month to twice a month. So I think that's actually where probably you'll get the most value of the membership personally. Doing the group calls, you guys get to actually, you know, ask our past guests questions, and I'm just there to facilitate it. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. If you wanted to leave a last word or anything else with the people who are listening or starting their own businesses, or maybe they already have or trying to expand it, do you have any other last thoughts that you want to leave with them? I would always love to share the fact that being genuinely interested in not only your own personal success, but the success and welfare of people around you, success breeds success and kindness breeds kindness, hopefully. And to me, kindness is much more important than intelligence. And I just strive every day to be the best person that I can be. And I think in life, there are givers and takers. And if you can surround yourself with givers and you're a giver yourself, then the sky's the limit in terms of what you can accomplish, again, personally and professionally, whatever success means to the individual. But to me, it's the, and it's the perfect season for it, Austin, no matter when you play this podcast or when anybody listens to it throughout the year, tis the season to be giving all year round. All right. Well, thank you very much for those last words. And if anyone wanted to connect with you, is there a best way for them to do that? I don't know if it's like through LinkedIn, Twitter, or some other way for them to maybe message you and say, thank you for doing the interview. Well, thank you so much. LinkedIn is my great platform to share all of our business accomplishments. And my email address is Renee at wetaways.com. And I'm always ready and willing to connect. All right. Well, thank you very much again, Renee. Thank you, Austin. Continued success to you. If you're looking for other female entrepreneurs we've interviewed, then here you go. Episode 5 with Sarah Shaw of Sarah Shaw Consulting. Episode 12 with Dory Clark of Reinventing You. Episode 15 with Jillian Hellman of Realty Mogul. Episode 33 with Dana Korn Van Noy of Sonic Boom Wellness. Or episode 48 with Siobhan Moran of Energetic Solutions. Guess what I'm going to say next? Please share the podcast. If you want to keep hearing more episodes of Millionaire Interviews, then please take the time to share it with somebody else 